can open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 24, as we see a clear presentation of the power of God over entrenched paganism and magic. I'll begin by reading the text again. We'll focus on the last part of the text this, this morning, starting in verse 5. Well, let's start at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city." Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, the Bible Knowledge Commentary summarizes this whole biblical section this way. Luke's purpose in including this incident with Simon was to show the superiority of Christianity over the occult and demoniacs. That is true. Daryl Bach, in his lengthy commentary, adds this insight. Luke has shown that Christianity has nothing to do with magic. This is also true. Our proposition has been God's power is unstoppable. The power of false religions and those who worship nature cannot in any way hold a candle to the movement and power of God and God's Spirit when He gets going. We've been learning the supremacy of God's power in four stages. This is now, if you're showing up today, this is stage number four, so you've missed a little bit. But the first stage was the proclaiming of God's power. This included the proclaiming of the gospel by Philip. He went down to Samaria, as it says, and he proclaimed the gospel. That's in verses 5 through 8. The second stage we looked at was Simon's attempt to imitate the power of God. That's what all paganism is and magic and sorcery and all of that when it is real and not a trick or an illusion. It taps into real supernatural power that, power that is there, but it's an imitation of God's power. It's not the fullness of God's power. And of course, people were amazed with him, but Simon ends up being amazed with the true power of God when he sees it. The third stage was the superiority of God's power. That was in verses 12 to 17. You see the power of God in the gospel. It convinces people. It changes lives. So they hear their life has changed. That shows God's power is greater. And then the Holy Spirit is doing great miracles, and that again displays God's power. 
And all of this amazed the great magician, the greatest magician they had around, the great one, you know, the great power of God. And yet he was not amazed at all with what he was doing. He was amazed with what God, the Holy Spirit, was doing. Today we come to fourth, and that is the wrongful seeking of God's power, the wrongful seeking of God's power. And this is in verses 18 through 24. After Simon's so-called conversion, and we talked about that last time, was it a real conversion? It said that he believed, said he was baptized, said he continued. He seems to have some interest. Was it a real conversion? I think not. After his so-called conversion, we read in verse 18, if you'll look at that, his offer. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, that's Peter and John, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, the text says Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed by the laying on of hands. It doesn't exactly tell us what Simon saw. Some have suggested that Simon heard the gift of tongues or languages that uh, was spoken about in Acts chapter 2, the supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language on earth. But that's something that's heard and not seen. Was there another sign that was seen? Possibly, because there needed to be some indication that the Samaritans were receiving the Holy Spirit, something that would indicate they were getting the Holy Spirit the same way that the Jews got the Holy Spirit. But if we tried to tell what it was that they saw, we would only be uh, giving a conjecture. So we are told the Samaritans did get the Holy Spirit, but we're told they did not get the Holy Spirit, until what? Until Peter and John came down, prayed for them, and laid hands on them, right? They had to do that. It doesn't even tell us that they laid hands on every single one of them. It may imply that. It may be that they laid hands on a group of them representatively, and now from here on out, all the Samaritans who came to faith in Christ day after day would automatically receive the Holy Spirit. But once these Jewish apostles prayed for Samaritans, prayed for them, Then and then only did Jesus at the right hand of the Father agree to send the powerful Holy Spirit to these half-Jews, half-Gentiles. Of course, the laying on of the hands is a public gesture, and it's meant to communicate something. It shows identity with the person. So so there is identity from the Jew to the Samaritan, see? It also shows transference. There's a gift that is being given. There's something that's being bestowed. That comes through the laying on of hands. And we know mere human beings have no power to control the Holy Spirit of God. So this is symbolic of what God is doing through them. Peter and John were privileged in this, right? They were privileged to bestow the Spirit or to have God bestow the Spirit through their laying on of hands. Why were they so privileged? Because Peter and John were apostles. What is an apostle? They are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. They were hand-selected by Jesus to be his representatives in the world. Other people may say, look, I speak for Jesus. They could say, no, we speak for Jesus. Uh, Jesus decided not to continue his teaching ministry. He chose us that we would continue that teaching ministry. And therefore, any, any religion that's connected to Jesus must listen, must listen to the apostles. If you don't listen to the apostles of Jesus, the ambassadors of Jesus, you're really not listening to Jesus at all. And they were privileged in this. Now, some may wonder, how is it possible that men could control the Holy Spirit? What is behind this that they're doing this? The answer is found in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16 and verse 19. What was going on there? That is the passage of Scripture where Peter was the very first person to confess that Jesus was the what? Do you remember? The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say, you know, you're Elijah and this and that. And then Jesus narrowed his gaze at his 12 apostles as they were on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And he said, but who do you say I am? Jesus wanted to know who they had concluded he was. And yes, it's very important to Jesus that human beings on this planet get him and his right identity. It's never good enough to call Jesus a prophet. His identity is he is the Son of God. And guess who it was who spoke first about it? Answer, Simon Peter. The guy who usually sticks foot in mouth now said something glorious. Thou art, I love the King James, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately Christ said, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is heaven. And then he went on and also said, because you have said this, you are blessed. And, and part of the blessing he gave to him is he said, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What a statement to make to a man. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, the keys were clearly given to only one person because the you in that passage is singular, not plural. He was talking to Peter. Peter got the keys. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, obviously, keys unlock things, right? If you have the keys, you feel special. You could unlock something someone else can't unlock because you have the keys. Someone else doesn't have them. The one who holds the keys then is the steward of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Peter was given the right as the first to confess Christ as God in human flesh, as the son of the living God, to open up the kingdom of God for other people. Peter was privileged. And John was there assisting him in this holy task. Now, don't go running off and saying, Pastor Leek has become Roman Catholic. <laughs> this doesn't make Peter the Pope. Peter did not found the church. The church was founded by Jesus Christ and it was laid down according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 on the foundation of the church. And do you know what the foundation is? Not Peter, but all the apostles, right? The foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets, by the way. It says that in Ephesians 2.20. Nor was Peter ranked higher than the other apostles. We already showed that he was a leader among leaders, not a leader over the other leaders. Paul certainly did not rank himself beneath Peter. He rebuked Peter once for something he did. Besides, Peter's privilege, whatever it was, could not be passed on to anybody else. The whole idea of the office of the Pope is that it's passed on from Peter to Clement and then to the others, and all of that is just church history imagination. That has nothing to do with Scripture. There was nothing that was passed on. Peter, anything that Peter had, he couldn't pass on to anyone else. By the way, John couldn't pass on being an apostle to anybody else because you had to be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry and his bodily resurrection. And so nobody after that time period could be an apostle. James could not pass on his apostleship to anyone. That's why when his head was chopped off in Acts chapter 12, he was not replaced. Philip could not pass on his office to anyone. Thomas could not pass on his office to anyone. Bartholomew or the others that I'm forgetting their names of, they could not either. He didn't pass on anything to anybody. And Peter certainly was not given instructions that he was supposed to go to Rome and transfer his powers to the bishop of Rome. Rome wasn't even the lead church. There was no instruction at all to the early church that all of a sudden the Roman church was to lead all the other churches. By the way, the churches in the east... Eastern Orthodoxy had a big problem with the, the pontiff or the bishop of Rome saying, you know what, we're the lead of all the other churches. They said, no, you know, here in Antioch and in Jerusalem and in the East, we had the gospel before you did. And you're not leading us, and that's why they don't fall under Catholicism today. By the way, Paul was more and better known in Rome than Peter was, and nor did Peter bear any title like Pope. So that's not what I'm saying. There's no hint of a pope or an office like that in the New Testament. I think anybody who reads the Scripture and wants to be fair with the Scripture would see that. Peter was rewarded for his confession, and he was rewarded with the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. Binding and loosing was language that the Jews were familiar with because their rabbis, their teachers, would either hold men accountable to certain laws and certain practices, that is, they would bind them to it, or they would release them from some responsibility. That is, they would loose, loosen them. In speaking to Peter, Jesus uses a future verb connected to a perfect participle, and it literally would be translated this way. Whatever you bind upon earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose upon earth will have been bound in heaven or loosed in heaven. That means that any binding that Peter does on earth in the present already has been done in heaven by God in the past. In fact, earth does it, Peter does it, because heaven has already declared it. 
So this does not teach that Peter had priestly powers. The keys are granted to Peter so that he will carry out the will of heaven in opening up the kingdom of heaven to other groups. What exactly would Peter be binding and loosening? Well, they're keys to the kingdom of heaven, he says so, and so he's opening up the door for their involvement in that kingdom. Peter's special role in opening up the kingdom for others is really laid out in the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, you can see all of the early chapters of Acts, all of the initiatives of where the gospel moves, moves because of Peter. Peter is the one who has to bring that. Philip was a great and faithful evangelist, but the Holy Spirit was not given because of Philip's ministry. The first guy to speak in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost is who? Who stands up and speaks for everybody? It's Peter, right? Peter gets to unlock the kingdom of God for the Jews. They believe, thousands of them, and the Spirit of God is given to them. And they're brought into the body of Christ. They're brought into the church. They're brought into the kingdom of God through Peter's preaching. Now, for the first time, it's moving beyond the Jews to these half-Jews, half-Gentiles. And who is it that God sends down there to be there? And it's Peter. Peter lays his hands on him along with John. And the Spirit of God responds to Peter's presence. You say, does this pattern continue? Yes, it does. Keep reading, and you get to Acts chapter 10, and it's explained in Acts chapter 11. And Peter has a vision, and, and uh, it's a vision of animals in a sheet, and he's told to arise and kill and eat it. And he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I call clean, no longer call unclean. And he's trying to figure all of that, and someone says, hey, come on down to Joppa. He goes down there, and they're Gentiles who are God-fearers, and, they, uh, and then he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom to them, and they believe, and then the Holy Spirit, because Peter is there falls on Gentiles for the first time. And again, another group is opened up because of Peter's ministry. Peter had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And all of the progress of the gospel follows Peter up until Paul, and then the rest in the second half of the book of Acts follows Paul's ministry. But it all starts with Peter. Peter did not individually decide who got saved. God alone does that. But he did open up the kingdom to new groups. God in heaven had already loosened the gospel to go to them. So Peter and John are there, and they bestow the Spirit on the Samaritans, and Simon sees this. Simon saw the power of God move through the hands of these two men. And wrongly, he sought that power. Never underestimate the audacity of proud men. He just walked right up to Peter and John and said, Here's a bag of silver. I want that power. Amazing. Can you just imagine that? I mean, what did, they, what did he think about Peter and John? Didn't know anything about Peter and John, right? Do you think they're going to take a bag of silver? These two men are willing to die for Jesus Christ. They're laying down their reputation, their money, their everything. They're not in this for the money. They're not in this to get rich. How sickening it is, people in religion that are there to get rich, Right? How gross and sickening that is. Well, Simon saw an opportunity. He saw gold and silver in his future. He'd give a bag of silver now. Who knows what he would get later with that kind of power, right? Obviously, he had no idea what motivated these believers in Jesus Christ, these dear apostles who were willing to lay down their lives for Christ. Simon just saw a golden opportunity. I guess he thought, everybody thinks like me. John Polhill in his commentary writes, as a professional, Simon was impressed with the commercial possibilities of the phenomena he had just witnessed. Give me this authority also. Make no bones about it. (laughs) He wanted power. Exousia, authority. Simon knew what many people today don't know who think they're so smart and so educated, and that is there is power available in the spirit world. This world is not all material. There is a spiritual dimension, and there are powers out there, and they are active in this world. And oftentimes, they have a a great time laughing at all the so-called educated and elite people of our society that are not educated at all in the way the world really is, and that is that there are spirit beings, and they do have a measure of power. Simon knew that. He wanted in on it. This was something greater than what he had before. He wanted greater authority. He wanted to climb the ladder of paganism, so to say. He wanted to dazzle people even more with power. He wanted to lay his hands on and see great things happen there. I think sometimes people in church just want to have a a dazzling gift of the Spirit so they have the ability to heal or this or that, and they're after the power. They're not after godliness. 
Simon, listen, Simon was addicted to power. Think how opposite his character is from our humble Lord Jesus. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, he said all exousia, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. How did he get all that power? Well, he didn't walk up to God with a bag of gold. He went to the cross and he laid down his life serving other people. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his life. He gave up everything to do the will of God. He was totally humble. That's what impressed God. God looked at the humility of his son, the perfect obedience of his son, and he said, I'm going to raise him from the dead, and I'm going to put him at the highest spot in the universe at my right hand. I'm going to turn to him and say, ask of me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Ask of me the nations, and I'll give it to you. And I'll give you all authority and all power. I'll just give it to you. Why? Because the life of Jesus impressed God. By the way, the rest of our lives, not so much. Not so much. They were not really all that good and great. Jesus was, and he ended up the highest. We should be learning from him, don't you agree? Walking humbly in his footsteps, not pursuing power, pursuing service. Whoever would be the greatest among you, let him be the greatest what? Servant of all, he said, when they were jockeying for positions in the kingdom. Remember that? Philippians 2.9, for this reason God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. And that's why Jesus was able to pour out the Holy Spirit and then control when the Holy Spirit would go to different groups. Simon did not care about doing God's will. Simon just wanted power. He'd make a good politician today. (laughs) They'll do anything for power, won't they? Do anything and say anything to hang on to power. Listen, with God, there are no shortcuts. God never rewards poorly motivated people. Check your hearts. What are your motivations? Are these words familiar? Listen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? That's impressive. And in your name perform many miracles? I've never performed one miracle. And then I will declare to them, Great job using the power of God. You know that's not what it says. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Go away from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's what a lot of people are going to hear. They're in church, they're after power, but they practice sin. If you want to do business with God, You don't buy his gifts. You beg for his mercy. Then you start obeying his commandments. Because if you don't obey his commandments, you're a phony. You're not real. Some leaders in church are all out for themselves. Watch out for them, no matter which church you go to. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Oh, and it is. People get rich off the religion. Jesus taught his disciples that ministry was giving. Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Freely you received, freely give. That's ministry. That's, if you're an, someone aspiring to be a leader in church, that's what it's all about. Well, barely were the words out of Simon's mouth when Peter gave about as strong a rebuke as you could give. I mean, there are a number of strong rebukes in the Bible. This one, this one ranks up there. You know, everyone wants to rank. What were the top 10 toughest things said in the Bible? I think this one might make it. Peter's correction is immediate. But Peter said to him, now just one note even there. You know the old adage, the only thing that has to happen for evil to triumph is for good men, what? To do nothing, right? Well, Peter didn't do nothing. He decided he would speak up. Peter did not let evil persist here in the Samaritan church. He dealt with it 
when cunning men slip inside of the church, and they do, by the way. We say, how do evil men get in our church? Well, evil men got in their church back then too, right? How does that happen? When they get in the right church, how do they do it? Saying all the right things. Doing seemingly all the right things, right? When they finally get revealed what is actually in their heart, when that moment comes and all of a sudden you see them for who they are, the other leaders still need to do something and do it quickly so that everybody else is not deceived by them, right? Evil and false teaching has to be answered. Divisive men, ill-motivated men who are selfishly ambitious, they want things for themselves. They do harm to the body. They must be openly confronted. Peter understood that was part of his shepherding charge from Jesus. The evil of Simon could have infected that brand new church in Samaria. So Peter moved to nip it in the bud. And I think at the same time he was trying to rescue this very foolish pagan man. In Peter's rebuke of Simon, we learn more than just about Simon. Please, as we go through this rebuke, don't think, oh, we're just hearing about how Peter rebuked some guy way back there and, you know, has nothing to do with me. No, I think we're really learning here about what makes proud men tick. What are they like? What are the characteristics of these proud men? You know, you could call this uh, seven truths of proud people. Or how about this? Seven things that are true about pagans dressed up as Christians. They're dressed up all as Christians, but they're actually pagans in the pew. Seven truths about them. Simon was believing. Supposedly, Simon was baptized. Simon was hanging around. I bet you he did some singing. (laughs) The first truth about him is he was perishing. Look at it. Verse 20. May your silver perish with you. Listen, pagans are no safer inside the church than outside the church. They are still perishing. Peter was uttering a curse upon Simon. And Simon, by the way, being a magician, he knew the language of curses. If you've ever read some of the alternate, looser translations of the New Testament, J.B. Phillips has one, and it's not an accurate translation always, but it's very interesting how he translates this this, uh, verse. He says, to hell with you and your money. It was a curse. He picks up on the spirit of this. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? Peter was basically assigning Simon to hell with a curse if he remained that way. Perish is a strong word, the word for destruction, apoleia. It's used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, enter the kingdom of God through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to, and there it is, destruction. Same word, perish, destruction. And many are those who enter through it. What's at the end of that way? Destruction. If you go on, you read more of the Bible, you find out it's called the lake of fire. That's where it's all headed. It's also used, by the way, of Judas who perished in John chapter 17, verse 12. John Calvin had this insight about Simon. A little bit of old English, so hang in with me. Peter giveth him the repulse here, stoutly. And being not content to chide him, he addeth a bitter curse that Simon and his money may perish together, though he doth not so much wish unto him destruction as he telleth him that the vengeance of God hangeth over his head so that he might terrify him. These warnings of the judgment of God are given as actually an act of mercy because if you heed the warning, then you don't get the what? The judgment, right? In other words, the severe judgments of God are being published to warn foolish men, even today, about the wrath of God. The world keeps saying there's no wrath of God, there's no wrath of God, there's no wrath of God, as if Satan is talking right through them, right? Over and over, how can you believe in a God that would do wrath? Well, we do. We believe in a God who brings wrath. He's bringing wrath in the world right now. Why do you think there's so many things wrong? He's brought wrath in the world before. There was a great giant flood that wiped out every living thing except for Noah and whatever is on the ark, right? The wrath of God is revealed. It's being revealed from heaven every single day, and it's in the future as well. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, Ephesians 5.5. Simon's silver brought him destruction. Simon's silver gave him trouble, just like Judas's silver did. Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, right? Then he departed and he went out and he killed himself. That's not repentance. Matthew 27. Ill-motivated men want 
silver, they want gold, but they want more than that. They want the silver and the gold so they can have the power and the prestige. I wonder if later in Peter's life he was reflecting on Simon when he wrote the second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. And he's describing that chapter all about false teachers and what motivates them. It's one of the most instructive chapters in all of the Bible about what's going on in the minds and hearts of false teachers, false prophets, false brethren. And there, in verse 14 of chapter 2, Peter wrote, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. I wonder if he was thinking about Simon. By the way, a little bit of a side note, don't envy wicked, rich, and powerful people. They have it coming. Second truth, they try to obtain advantage with God the wrong way. It says, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Well, the Holy Spirit not only dispenses his own spiritual gifts to people so they can use them in the body of Christ, but did you know that the Holy Spirit himself is described as a gift? Did you know you not only received gifts of the Holy Spirit, you received the gift who is the Holy Spirit himself? And who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. So God living inside of you. He communicates the very presence of Jesus so that he's called the Spirit of Christ. You have the Spirit of Christ that is Jesus in you. That's a gift to you, a precious gift. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 calls the Holy Spirit the gift of the Spirit. Acts chapter 10 verse 45 also says the gift of the Spirit was given to the Gentiles. He's a gift. But Simon didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power to control the Holy Spirit to dazzle people. There's a difference. Isn't the Holy Spirit, though, a greater treasure? Isn't he? Shouldn't we treasure the Holy Spirit himself, a relationship with him? Do you treasure that? He is the spirit of truth, and he resides inside of your body. Your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Christian. And he has come, and he has decided to live inside of you. And he is there communicating the very presence of God to you. And he is the teacher of truth, and he resides inside of you. How precious a treasure is that? He is the spirit of the living God. He brings the very presence of God down inside of you. In the Old Testament, the presence of God would come and reside in a tabernacle and then in the temple. But guess who is that tabernacle and that temple right now? You are your body. And he lives inside of you. How special and precious that is. Why would we ever think we need something more, some greater treasure than the very presence of God? God has given himself to us. We should value the gift of the Spirit more than any power, any ability, any giftedness he gives to us. But Simon wanted power, not a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Polhill simply says, Simon was viewing the whole thing through the eyes of a magician. He really hadn't changed. Dressed him up on the outside, a pagan still on the inside. You know, the term simony came into our language from this very incident. It means to purchase a church office with money. When Christendom was great in Europe and it meant something to be a pastor, it was prestigious to be a priest or whatever, people would try to buy an office and then they'd get all the the benefits and the perks from it. And it was called simony from this guy. I noticed recently that people have been outraged with those privileged rich people trying to buy their way into colleges for their kids. You notice that? And they're outraged about that. How much more should we be outraged when someone tries to buy privilege in the kingdom of God? This is a real insight for us. Evil men try to use their influence for manipulation. They try to look good. They try to look kind. They'll even do nice things, but their motive is to create a following. Their motive is to wrest people away and to create a following for themselves. It's about themselves. It's not about the church. They don't care about the unity of the church. They don't care about the sheep of the church. They care about what they're going to get out of it. That's what they care about. And in time, they are revealed. Greed for power, greed for money lays behind their actions. And it, it, ironically, it destroys them too. It destroyed Judas. It destroyed Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? Chapter 5. Now Simon was in danger of destruction as well. But thankfully... Greed did not control Peter and John. Don't miss the good example here. Warren Wearsby notes, the early church had its priorities straight. 
It was more important to preach the word than to win the support of the wealthy and influential people of the world. Don't ever say, let's go reach the wealthy people so we can finish our building programs. Don't ever say that. We reach the people God wants us to, right? All right, the third truth of pagans dressed up as Christians is they are outside the kingdom of God. Look at verse 21. You have no part or portion in this matter. Matter is literally the word, word, which then means you have no part in the word that is being proclaimed here, the gospel, the ministry that is associated with you. You have no part in this at all. That phrase, having no part of something, is an Old Testament imagery. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 12, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 27, for those that would have no portion in an inheritance. It means you have no part of it. Whatever is being given, you have no part of it. You see, you're outside of that. Simon had no part in the gospel. Simon had no part in the kingdom. He was uh, going to be given no inheritance at all in the kingdom of God. He was cut off. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19 uses similar language. It says there, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, talking about the book of Revelation, God will take away his share from the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. God cut you off. God cut you off. That's for those who are not true believers. So really what happened here is Simon was excommunicated from the church. Simon was told, you have no part in this. He was put outside the church. Yes, the early church knew who was in the inside and who was the outside. You can't be sort of. You either join a church or you don't, you see. They knew who was in. They knew who was out. They put him out. He was being put out by Peter right here. You have no part in this at all. And that's true of pagans. Pagans who come in, they have no part at all in the kingdom of God. They may have actually found their way to be a member of a local church, but God hasn't accepted them because they haven't really repented in their own heart. And that leads us to truth number four. Their heart is not right before God. That's what Peter said. Your heart is not right before God. God looks at hearts, right? Men look at what? The outward appearance, right? God looks where? Into the heart. He sees your mind. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows them better than we know them, right? He looks right down into you. He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. He knows what you're doing. He knows why you're here today. He knows what's going on in your mind and your motives. He could tell everything. And Simon's heart before God was not accepted. It was not right. The heart tells the true story of what's going on inside of a man. The heart is the actual makeup of a person. Peter here was making an accurate judgment about Simon. Wait, I thought you weren't supposed to judge other people. How could Peter do that? Didn't Jesus say not to judge? Matthew 7, 1, yes, he did. Yes, he did. But Jesus there meant it stop hypocritical judging where you're looking at the, what, speck in a brother's eye while you have a log in your own, right? You're doing worse than him and you're judging him? Better take the log out, then you can see clearly, he said. He was trying to stop hypocritical judging. But if you read a little further, by the way, in that very same chapter in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you will know the false prophets by their, what, fruit. He said, judge them, evaluate them. Know whether they're true or false. Know whether they're good or bad. Well, how are we going to know whether they're good or bad? Look at their fruits. A good tree produces what? Good fruit. A bad tree produces what? Bad fruit. You will know them, not guess them, know them by their fruit. So he told his followers, exercise discernment. Wolves will come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. How am I going to know? Look at their fruit. Look at their life. At first, maybe you can't tell. You have to look a little closer, and then time tells. Then you see who they are. Peter was judging with righteous judgment, and this is a good example for us. Jesus in John 7, 24 said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge, that's a command, judge with righteous judgment. So yes, we're supposed to judge. We're supposed to evaluate. We never, we never can be the final judge. But we are functional judges in what we see now. God is the final judge. Peter knew what Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he said, I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on in your heart. You're about the money. I can see that. Take a close-up look at somebody and you'll know. By his desire to buy the gift of God, all of a sudden... Simon was revealed to the whole congregation. 
By the way, later Paul would expose the wrong heart of Elymas, another magician, in Acts chapter 13, 10. He said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Sounds like a judgment to me. I'm, I'm a little slow. I'm not really sure, but it sounds like a pretty harsh judgment. You better be sure of your judgment, so don't walk out to the first pagan you see and say, oh, I see you didn't go to church today, you pagan. <laughs> That's judging according to appearance. You could just be like, man, my car broke down and I was trying to get to church or whatever, you know, right? You've got to judge righteously and get all your facts, right? Fifth truth of proud men is the only path back for them is public repentance and begging for forgiveness. The fifth truth about proud men or pagans dressed up as Christians is the only pathway back for them is through repentance and begging for forgiveness. That's it. Look at verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Listen, sins can never be excused. People act as if God's forgiveness means God excuses sin. Oh, no, God never excuses sin. And God's church never should excuse sin. The offending party must repay. The offending party must repent. The offending party must reverse their thinking, turn from their sin, and come back to God and do whatever is necessary to make things right. The call for repentance was a call for salvation. Repentance is necessary if you want to be saved. If you want to make sure that you are saved, you have to make sure in your life that you did more than say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. You have to turn from your sins to Christ as your Savior. This is the one way, the only way of escaping God's judgment. There is no other way. When someone else comes along and says there's another way to God, they're setting you up for your own doom. They're not loving you. They're not being tolerant. They're not being open-minded. They're tearing down and getting you distracted from the only bridge that works between sinful humanity and holy God. There's one way back. It's repentance. That's the only way back. If you're a sinful man, if you're a sinful woman, the only way back to God is through repentance. By the way, the if possible part that Peter says there doesn't mean that God's reluctant, you know, to forgive. If someone is sincere, God will forgive immediately. God, God is very generous in his forgiveness. It just sort of includes, will the person really genuinely repent? That's the idea, you see. God does forgive sins, but he does not forgive sins of people who won't turn back to him. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way. Let me read that again. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. See, it's reversing the thinking. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. The problem isn't with God's willingness to abundantly pardon. The problem is whether people are going to reverse their thinking and come back to God. Repentance is a clear biblical doctrine, and it's sorely needed in the modern church. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul, in verses 19 and 20, kind of summed up his entire preaching ministry this way. He said, he was talking to a King Agrippa. He said, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should, here it is, repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Pagans in the pews in church need to repent. Repentance is a necessary part of ongoing gospel proclamation. It is the command of God. All men everywhere are to repent. What does repentance involve? It doesn't just involve saying, I'm sorry. It means turning back to God with your whole heart. It means being willing to do whatever it is that needs to be done to demonstrate the goodness of your heart Peter was calling Simon to repent. If you are really not a believer in Christ, you're coming in here dressed up as a Christian. You're a pagan in the pew. You're dressed up like a Christian, but you're not one. Then you need to listen. The only thing God wants you to understand is your heart is not right before God. You have no part at all in this matter, and you need to repent and return back to God. If you're a, a child that's grown up in this church and you've just been piggybacking on the faith of your parents and you haven't come to a repentant faith yourself yet, you're outside the kingdom of God, and God knows that. You can fool everybody in this church. You cannot fool God. 
He knows that. When you get serious with God and you get genuine and real with God, he will save you. Until then, you're just a pagan in a pew. You're just the same as anybody else out there worshiping magic and nature. You're no different at all. And Simon understood, Simon Peter understood this and said it to Simon. The sixth truth about these dastardly men are their souls are in the gall of bitterness. Look at verse 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. This is a terrible place to be. Gall is already a bitter substance. When you add the extra word picria, bitterness, onto that, you have double bitter. It's bitter, bitter, you see? The gall of bitterness. Peter, again, is using Old Testament imagery for a person that was in the thick of sin and all of the nastiness that goes with that sin. Jeremiah 4.18 says, Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. This is what's going on. It's happened to you, and it's, it's bitter. It's in your heart. It's in your life. This is a terrible thing inside of you. We are to watch out for one another. This doesn't happen to any of us, by the way. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, we're given this exhortation, and this is for people in church. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. So you look around you and say, make sure nobody's missing this. Let's look out for one another. Those of you that have the gift of encouragement, those of you that, that you know, you, you can't rely on just the elders or just the teachers to be able to reach everybody. Find out. Outreach to people. You haven't seen them back in church for a little bit. What's going on in their life? Chase after them. Be, be a shepherd-like person that cares for them. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. One person begets, gets embittered and gets sad and soured and they start to sour all the rest of the people around them. See that that doesn't happen. What a terrible condition to be in a distasteful place of bitterness. Even life itself is not enjoyable. You know, the people that try to make other people's lives miserable, they're usually pretty miserable themselves. Did you notice? And then seventh and last, he says that they are in the bondage of iniquity. In the bondage of iniquity. That's about as clear a description of an unregenerate person as you will find in the New Testament. Jesus promised his followers release from the captivity to sin. Simon was still bound in sin. To believers, Paul wrote in Romans 6, 14, sin shall not be master over you. Why not? Because you're not under law that condemns. You're under grace that gives power. Not so the wicked, Proverbs 5, 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his own sin. John 8, 38, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. You don't control sin in your life. It controls you. You think you got away with a sin? It got away with you. It pulled you in. Now you're going to have a harder time turning back to God. Now you are going to be the one that's destroyed. The joke is on you, not on God. Thank God for his grace. Not only to remove the penalty of sin, but to begin to purge us of the practice of sin. Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be, but not anymore. We've been set free. Well, that's the seven truths of proud men. Last and quickly, we come to Simon's response. And I have to tell you up front, it's rather disappointing. Look at verse 24. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them were trying to defend Simon as a positive response here. I think it's far short of what true biblical repentance is. Simon feared the power of greater spirit beings and the curse he was just placed under. He did not take Peter's threat lightly. He saw that Peter controlled power, but he interpreted it through the grid of his magician paganism. He did not turn to Christ. There was no repentance. James Montgomery Boyce makes this point, that this request to pray for him did not come from his personal piety but from disobedience to what Peter just finished telling him to do. He should have been like the prodigal son when he finally came to his senses. Do you remember his words? 
Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Ah, them be words of repentance. Or Zacchaeus, realizing he'd been a fraud, and he used his position to mooch everybody from the money as a tax collector, right? Behold, Lord Jesus, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Why four times as much? To prove his heart was right. I think Simon just feared being cursed. I don't think he wanted to get right with God. You you pray for me that nothing will happen to me. And with this, Simon Magus falls off the pages of Scripture, never to be heard of again. Tisk tisk. Oh, except church history assigns about every heresy in the world to this guy. <laughs> but the lessons from his pitiful life remain. If you will wisely heed them, how impotent is a man who gives himself to the powers of darkness? Nay, I'll say even more, how hard it was for this man influenced by demons to have his eyes opened when the gospel came knocking on his door. You see, dabbling with the occult, dabbling with sorcery and magic blinds the eyes. It's not benign, it's not neutral, it's not something, I'll do this for a year and then I'll climb out of it. If you had that as your background, you should be down on your hands and your knees thanking God for his mercy, that he had mercy on you. Because usually when this happens, the darkness just settles in and it is God's judgment and there is no coming out of it. Simon didn't come out of it. Yes, Satan and Satan's minions have their power. Yes, they use it. Yes, pagan practitioners tap into it. But time and time again, we see that Satan and his followers lose. And they lose to the power of God. Everything's backwards in Scripture, right? We look like we have no power here, and yet we carry around the power of Christ with us everywhere we go. This very day, God could use you to change the life of somebody forever simply because you show a little act of kindness, you spend a little bit of time to talk to them, and you give them the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that could be you today? His power works quietly. His power works in weak people. His power works in people like you and me. But his power, his power always wins. Always wins. We trust in his power. The power of God advances the gospel. The power of God wins every time. As Daniel concluded in Daniel 2.20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him.